1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have eternal life. Rod's going to come up and speak to us now. Great to have you. If you're back as a regular, if you're visiting with us, a uh, special welcome to you. We've been working through this series in 1 John. We've got down to the last couple of weeks, so we're looking at the first half of 1 John 5 tonight, second half next week, of course. And you may have noticed in this reading already that this is a tricky passage, and next week's is not much different, actually. So there's some uh, difficult uh, things to unpack in these two weeks. Uh, so let me give you that heads up as we go into tonight. And we're going to sort of look at the passage in a reverse as well. We're going to be looking at the second half and then coming to the first half. I'll explain that as we go. Um, but let me um, ask you to join me in prayer. We pray that God will help us as we come to his word. We really want to understand it and grapple with it well so that we might respond to it rightly and live in the light of it. So uh, let's do that now and ask for his help. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here this evening we thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you that even with the restrictions that we face, uh, there is great joy in meeting with brothers and sisters in Christ who we share a common faith in our Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray tonight that you might help us as we think hard about uh, the witnesses that point to the sonship of Christ and the response that you call for us, or call from us as we place our faith in him. Lord, challenge us where we need challenging, encourage us where we need encouragement tonight that we might live in the light of your gospel and live in a way that pleases you. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Josh McDowell was an American who was a, a university student many decades ago now, went to university and tried going to church for a little while but found religion very unsatisfying. He started applying for positions, student positions at the uni, got into some of those but found that the glamour of that wore off very quickly and there was no joy in it. 
He joined the party scene of some of the friends around him, but often woke up Monday morning feeling sorry for himself and thinking that this was empty as well. At one point, he noticed a bunch of students uh, sitting together, and then he saw that they were uh, reading the Bible. But he went up to them and said to them, because a couple of them just seemed so happy and joyful, and he said, you know, what is it that um, makes you so excited? And they said, Jesus Christ. He said, don't give me that rubbish about religion. And they said, we didn't say religion. We said Jesus. And they challenged him to investigate the claims of Christ, to do that for himself and to think hard about it. He went away and did just that. Similarly, another American, Lee Strobel, uh, he trained as a journalist and as a lawyer, and he had uh, been very atheistic in his outlook. Uh, he was in shock briefly after he got married that his wife suddenly became a Christian. And he thought he needed to debunk this Christianity thing. Couldn't believe it. And he thought he would apply all his skills as a lawyer and a journalist to try and prove, disprove Christianity. And so away he went, uh, spending two years investigating. He said to himself, I need to establish whether there is a strong evidence base, believable testimonies to prove that there is a case for Christ. Well, as we come to 1 John 5 this evening, uh, we're confronted with some testimonies. Hence your little scenario before. John's wanting to prevent, uh, present to us rather evidence that pro should produce faith in Jesus. He's also going to construct an argument of the kind of effect that faith in Jesus should produce in a person's life. And so the question that I want us to consider this evening is double-barreled along those lines. Why should we believe in Jesus and what does faith produce? Why should we believe in Jesus and what does faith produce? This section is all about faith and its effects, and that's what we're going to consider tonight as we look at this passage. Now, the first answer to that, the first part of the question, why should we believe? We should believe in Jesus because of the three testimonies. We should believe in Jesus because of the three testimonies. Notice again verses 7 and 8 of 1 John 5. The Apostle John writes, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now, the belief that he's talking about here is what he's just outlined in verse 5, the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's a very specific statement. It's pointing to the divinity of Christ, to be sure that Jesus is the Son of God. And John goes on to marshal these three witnesses to prove his case in verses 6 to 10. And what we've just read in verses 7 and 8 is really a concise summary in the middle of his argument of what those three testimonies are. But notice firstly that they're in agreement. It's always important if you're going to have compelling evidence in a court case that the witnesses need to say the same thing, or at least roughly they need to line up. If they all disagree, then the argument falls apart very quickly. He says they're compelling in evidence because the three agree. But you might ask, well, what are these three testimonies that we're supposed to consider in order to believe in Jesus? Well, let's consider each of these in turn because they're not immediately obvious, are they? Firstly, the water. It's originally mentioned in verse 6 where Jesus is said to be the one who came by water. Now, the water here is reference to the baptism of Jesus, the testimony of the Father at the baptism of Jesus. This is recorded in all four of the Gospels. 
But in John's gospel, who is obviously the writer of this letter too, he states in John 1 verses 32 to 34, Then John, that is John the Baptist, gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Notice John's language here. It's all about testimony, improving a point. And this comes from his, the start of his gospel. But in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, there's additional evidence. It's not simply uh, the descent of the Spirit as a dove, but it's also the words of the Father, this voice from heaven that comes down and says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so we have the voice from heaven and the descent of the Spirit. Here's the Father marking out His Son, both through words spoken and the Spirit given, and why is this important? Well, this is the start of Christ's public ministry. You know, three years of public ministry begins with his baptism by John the Baptist. This will mark the start of all his teaching and his miracles that will lead up, of course, to the final days in Jerusalem. But what about the second one? There's the water. What about the blood? Also mentioned for the first time in verse 6. Well, the blood is a reference to Christ's death on the cross, which marks, of course, the culmination of his public ministry. Of course, he will be raised from the dead and will return to heaven, but the climax of his public ministry is his death on the cross. The one announced as the Son of God at the baptism with the testimony of God's voice is also the one who bears the punishment for our sin at the end of his earthly life as the God-man who died in our place. And that purpose of him coming to die for us was announced at the beginning as well, at the baptism. You remember as Jesus approached John the Baptist for the baptism in the Jordan River, John exclaimed, look or behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And so right from the beginning of his public ministry, this is the purpose. Jesus came to die. And then at the end of his ministry, of course, that is what took place. And we know that it's so important that he be identified not only as the Son of God at his baptism, but also at his crucifixion. Because John is at point, uh, pains to point out, did you notice, in verse 6, that Christ does not only come by water, or that is the testimony of his baptism, but also by blood, the testimony of his death. And as you read um, the gospel accounts as they get to crucifixion, especially in Matthew's gospel, the climax of all the events that unfold in that final week is the Roman centurion and those with him responsible for ensuring the death of Jesus was completed, offering their assessment of this one who had come. Matthew 27 verse 54 states, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Son of God pointed out at his baptism, Son of God at his crucifixion. Purpose of his coming explained at his baptism, now fulfilled. Jesus, the one who died on the cross, not just a man, he is nothing less than God. He is the God-man with us. The perfect substitute brokering a peace deal between a holy God and sinful people. 
There's the water, there's the blood. Thirdly, third and final witness mentioned is the Spirit. So again, first uh, mentioned here in verse 6 in this second section, it's the Spirit, we're told in verse 6, who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Now let's uh, uh, pursue this metaphor of John's for a moment. You're in a uh, courtroom scene, there's a witness box, and you're calling your witnesses to prove a point. When the Holy Spirit is called to testify, he doesn't need to place his hand on a Bible and say, you know, I, I say that I will tell the whole truth, I swear by Almighty God. He is God the Spirit. The Spirit is truth, John says. And so his testimony is strong. The Spirit bears witness because he enables the disciples to know the truth about Jesus and to write it down. Indeed, that was what Jesus actually said while he was with the disciples before his death. Remember in John's Gospel, in John 15, verses 26 and 27, we read, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Notice this language again here. Uh, the apostles were really human channels through which the truth was relayed as they taught and recorded the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that he truly was the Son of God. And, of course, the Spirit enabled that, guaranteed that what was written down in this apostolic eyewitness testimony that we have in the New Testament is the truth, is God's word to us. And so the Spirit bears witness through God's word. Now, we know that ourselves today. It is that same Holy Spirit that is at work to make His Word come to us with conviction that can instruct minds and change wills even today. And so with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, of course, many people came to faith as they heard the gospel preached and the Holy Spirit worked amongst the hearers so that 3,000 people um, came to faith and were baptized that first day as Peter preached the good news. And John is arguing here that we can have full confidence because we've got three witnesses united in their testimony. Remember, if you were a Jew, much the same as our um, you know, court system today, you need multiple witnesses to prove a point. And the Old Testament says over and over, you must have two or three witnesses for the evidence to be ironclad. And so John's saying, well, you have three witnesses here, and they're all from God. We can be certain that Jesus is the Son of God. John testified at his baptism. So did the Father through the Spirit and the voice from heaven. The centurion testified at his crucifixion. So did the Father through an earthquake, through the darkening of the day for hours on end. And then there is the testimony of the Holy Spirit both in those who would believe, but through God's word, ensuring that the good news, the message of Christ's sonship, his divinity, would be explained to the world. And the result, we're told in verses 11 and 12, if we receive these three testimonies, is that we will then receive eternal life. You notice in verses 11 and 12, so much is at stake here. People's eternal destiny is at stake in their response to these three testimonies from God about his son. Belief in Jesus grants the life of the world to come. And did you notice in this passage, it's a present possession of Christians already. It's already been given in verses 11 and 12. 
It'll be fully consummated later, yes, when Jesus returns. But we have life now through faith in the Lord Jesus. It begins as we come to him and extends into eternity from this point. Eternal life is found in Christ. Life is in the Son because he alone has triumphed over death through his resurrection. And he is the only one who has the power to grant life, life eternal, to those who place their trust in him. But maybe you're surprised at this point by the three witnesses that have been called. Maybe you find these witnesses a bit tricky. You're hoping, you know, that somebody would speak about science or ethics or history or they'd, you know, work on the archaeology as the proof that Jesus is the Son of God. But we don't get any of those things here. And that's certainly the case for many people. That was the case for the atheistic journalist Lee Strobel. He spent two years looking at science and philosophy and history and archaeology. He was quizzing experts. He was writing down all the pros and cons. He said he read all the literature for and against Jesus from many people. And eventually on November 8, 1981, he sat down in his office at home, pulled out his yellow legal pad, drew two columns and said, what is the evidence for and against? And he said, by the time I got to the bottom of my evidence, I realized it would take me more faith to hold on to my atheism than it would to grant that Jesus was true. And so I gave my life to him, he said. He wrote a book about his conversion, most notably A Case for Christ, and he's written several others since. Similarly, Josh McDowell, um, he did investigate after he was challenged by those university students. All right, I'll go away and look at these claims of Jesus. And he spent some time also putting it together And he said, in the end, I just couldn't refute the body of evidence supporting Christianity. And his research became the background for his now famous book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which has gone through about 10 versions and updates over the last several decades. Well, maybe that's you. You know, you want to read somebody like that that's going to address all of those questions, the history, the science, the archaeology. By all means, I'm not dismissing that for a moment. But do you see John's point here? As important as it is for us to consider arguments from philosophy or science or history, have we dismissed God's testimony in doing so? You notice in verse 9 of our passage, John notes, we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater. God's testimony is greater. See, ultimately, the evidence we consider needs to focus on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what these three testimonies do that John has outlined. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we need to accept these testimonies at his baptism, at his death, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's the three testimonies. There's the first half of the question. But what about the second half? If I became convinced of that evidence, if I placed my trust in Jesus, what effect would that have in my life? What would that produce in me? So the second answer is faith produces love, obedience, and victory. That's the first five verses of 1 John 5. Faith produces love, obedience, and victory. Have a look again with me at verses 1 to 4. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by 
loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So if we rightly understand faith in Jesus as a sign of the new birth, that a person has come to new life, been regenerated through the work of God in them, then evidences of that faith should flow. And John is outlining a number of things that should be seen that are confirmation of that new relationship we have with God. And there are three things that he notes here. They're not exhaustive. There are other things that the New Testament might point to. But notice the three things that he outlines. Love, obedience and victory. Let's consider each one in turn again. So firstly, if we place our faith in Jesus, we'll have a new love for God and a love for other people, a love for his children in particular in this passage. Now, this one's not one that strikes us as fresh. Uh, John's been beating this drum for four chapters already, hasn't he? Love God, love people. This is what should be produced in a Christian's life. But we need to hear it again and again. Clearly, John wants to emphasize And I think he helps us by just using this family analogy in these couple of verses. See, I wouldn't have to say to you, you know, it's important for you to love the members of your family. Or if you are a parent here, to love your children. You would say, well, of course I I love my children. He says, well, if that's how it is in an earthly family, if you use the same spiritual analogy, if God is now your father, how could you not love his children? They've been adopted into his family just like you. You will love your brothers and sisters if you're a believer. This will show itself in your life clearly. And that's why when we got to the end of chapter 4 last week, he said in verse 20, you can't say that you love God who is unseen, but not love your brothers and sisters that are right in front of your face each day. How could that be? Well, first and foremost, authentic faith will produce love. It's a primary fruit. It's a primary theme throughout this letter. But secondly, faith will produce obedience. You notice what is stated in verses 2 and 3. It's very clear there that in verses 2 and 3, that not just the conclusion of um, his his work, uh, but obedience to his commands is so important uh, for the believer. And it's related to love. It's actually the way in which we're told we love God. This is what gives love its moral fiber, uh, John is arguing. I think it's something we need to emphasize. um, Because I think in today's day and age, it seems counterintuitive, at least to non-Christians, that love is expressed in obedience. Uh, Somehow our world likes to see these two things as opposites today. Love has been so redefined as an emotion or a feeling solely that we feel that if it has concrete actions that I need to do for somebody, that somehow that's just an obligation, that that's a dead duty or something. That's not love. That's not true at all, is it? It must have moral content. There must be disciplined action that relates to this love. If we live for God, then surely obeying His commands is not some um, thing that we reluctantly adhere to not something that we put up with it's not something as john says in verses three and four that we should feel is a burden i'm not burdened by god's commands his word to me i delight in them i want to respond to my loving heavenly father by living in a way that pleases him and so as i 
respond to his word, as I seek to obey his commands. It is my joy. It's the heart of my Christian discipleship. How do I grow in my desire to follow Jesus if I don't actually live out his word day by day? And of course, we know that again, if you think about it in terms of family relationships. Um, what if a couple who are married um, say, oh, well, I love you, but then they ignore everything the other person says all the time. You'd say, really? You know, is, is their love shown in any way? We don't ignore their words. Well, it's the same with God. How can we claim to love God, but then ignore his words and live otherwise? No, we're called to live in a way that is obedient to his word. The problem is that God never indulges the sin of disobedience. You know, it's, it's not just, oh, well, his words are there, and if you feel like it, then um, feel free to follow them. Or they're, you know, they're just rules that you feel a burden and so you, you flout them when they're constraining you in some way. That's just not the Christian attitude. But it is the attitude we often see in the world, isn't it, to various rules and regulations. I don't know if you saw, um, it was sent to be by someone who remained nameless on Facebook, but just over a week ago it was reported that uh, three men were banned for two years from visiting Yellowstone National Park. Three years. <laughs> from the park it was because they were spotted going in hiking with backpacks with a whole lot of cooking pots and things hanging out the back uh, this information was passed on to the ranger who then took an interest in this group and followed them in and when he got to them they had gone to one of the many thermal springs in Yellowstone and they had two whole chickens in a burlap bag that they were cooking inside the thermal pond and there was a cooking pot nearby so when he turned up and said, what are you doing? The evidence was pretty clear. They couldn't say, oh, we're not doing anything, sir. Um, in fact, they didn't seem concerned at all about the rules. There are giant signs that say you're not allowed to carry such things in. You certainly can't cook. In fact, you're supposed to stay on the boardwalk. You're not allowed to go off any of the trails. They were doing 20 things wrong. And when he approached them and said, what are you doing? They said, we're making dinner. It's not surprising then that they were dragged off and two of them spent a couple of nights in jail for their enjoyment and the third one had a really big fine of $1,200. But they saw it as no <laughs> important thing that they could just flout the rules. These are restrictions. Why can't we just do what we want? That it's so dangerous. Each of those thermal pools um, there, the geysers, um, are between 180 and 196 degrees Fahrenheit. There was a young three-year-old girl that had just fallen in uh, just a few weeks before and been badly scolded before, um, just before they came. This is not a thing to muck around. The, the rules are not there to constrict or constrain people. It's for the protection of life. It's for their joy, for their benefit, their good. So often we don't see obedience in those terms. But as a Christian, we must surely see obedience in those terms. We don't do what God asks of us because, oh, I guess we have to, but we know that God loves to see his people respond to his word, that he calls us to a life that is abundant and what he sets out for us is the path of wisdom, the path that brings us the most joy in response to him. What's well, so important uh, that we understand these things and if we're going to respond rightly, then we need to grasp what it looks like to live in the way that God calls us to. But thirdly and finally, uh, faith will produce victory. 
You notice verse 4 there, it's a very inclusive statement. Everybody born of God will overcome the world. Everybody born of God, anyone who placed their trust in Jesus as the Son, will overcome the world. It's a a theme that was raised back in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. And it's popped up a couple more times. Our struggle as we read a section like this is we often have this positive view of the world. You know, it's the one, what a wonderful world. Louis Armstrong, I see trees are green, red roses too. That is not the picture that the world, (laughs) the word world is meant to conjure up. Certainly not in John's writing. The world is everything which is opposed to God, is that which stands against God in disobedience to him. And so the picture here is that as we exercise faith, we find that we will grow in our ability to live in a way that pleases God as he conforms us more to the likeness of his son. We're living in a world that is under the influence of Satan, but faith in Jesus enables us to have victory in this sphere of opposition. Once a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ as the son of God, the enemy's hold on that person is broken forever. And so faith in Jesus sets us free because Christ has defeated his work, the devil's work. And that's a work of scattering people, of leading them away from trusting Jesus, while God's work is to gather his people as they trust in his son. And so we cannot share in God's victory in our daily life if we do not believe in his son and take hold of the resources that we have in him. See, as we conclude this evening, we need to grasp that if we believe Jesus is the son of God who paid for our sin, then God calls us to live a life that will demonstrate that by love for him and for one another, by obedience to his commands and victory over the world and its lies and empty pursuits. And as we exercise faith, we will actually find that it works. I'm sure many of you can testify that to that tonight, that living God's way really is the best way and that he will continue to lead us and shape us to live for him Now, that doesn't mean we will live perfectly this side of heaven, that we won't struggle with sin, that we won't struggle with the temptations that are around us in this world. But if we think about those moments when we fail, we'll realize that what's happened at that moment is that we've failed to trust or obey. It really comes back to those simple, key, foundational points of the Christian life. Our faith connects us to God's resources so that his truth enables us to overcome the darkness of this world. And such faith is powerful. Now, our world would try and say such faith is blind and irrational. We've just seen tonight that John's laid out a number of evidences. Blind and irrational is different (laughs) than having a whole foundation to stand upon. It's more like a driver who enters fog I'm sure some of you have driven up Mount Oosley in really bad conditions like I have, or you've got to the top of Bulleye and you haven't been able to see for several kilometres. You've got about a metre or two's visibility. And in those um, points, you, you find that you can hardly see the marking of the lines on the road. Sometimes there's flashing warning signs. But that doesn't seem to affect some of the drivers. There's lots of evidence. I can't see. Lights are flashing. I should slow down. I'm being told to. You know, they're past you at 120 kilometers an hour as if nothing's happening. And that could be scary. The the most fearful I've been is on a motorway in the UK um, many years ago when we're in that kind of position. A really heavy fog. It was a four or five lane freeway. 
and we were in a car that had mechanical issues and so we couldn't go faster than about 80 kilometres an hour. It was a 100, 110 zone. We're hugging the inside lane, hoping somebody doesn't run up the back of us at 100 miles an hour. And here are all these people flashing past us as if nothing was happening. That is blind faith. That is the kind of faith that believes that accidents happen, but they never happen to me. That's ignoring the evidence. And that's not what Christians do. Those who respond to the evidence are much more likely to overcome and survive, both on the road and as we respond to God and what he's revealed to us. Don't hope against hope if you don't know where you stand with Jesus. It's time to investigate the claims, like a Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you know exactly where you stand, that he is the one that has bore your sin so that you might be freed and be given new life. Then is your life now shaped by him? Are you seeing the effects of faith in the Son in your life? Are you seeing a renewed and growing love for God and for fellow believers? Are you seeing a growing obedience to his word that you just so desire to understand and to respond to it? It's no burden for you. It's the joy of your life. And thirdly, as a result, are you seeing increasing victory over the world where you see that the things of this passing world are now fading before you. They're just not important. You know that they're empty. But you've got something so much greater that you're heading towards and that is going to shape your decisions day by day, moment by moment. Will you pray with me that that may be the case for each one of us? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that in John we're given three evidences of yours for us. And Lord, we pray that you might help us to reflect on those, on the baptism of Jesus, on his death for us, on the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that if we have come to know Jesus as our Saviour, that we may indeed be responding day by day, growing in our faith, that it may be evidenced in our life in our love, in our obedience, in our growing sanctification as we overcome the darkness of this world, as we truly live for you and not as those around us who have not accepted the testimony that Jesus is your Son, the Son of God. Lord, grant us an ability to continue to respond to you. Help us to find great joy in listening to your voice in your word. Work in us by your Spirit to change us and mould us We ask these things in Christ's powerful name. Amen.